everything that I've learned back then, you know, really helped me in the various positions that I've taken uh, in my career from covering the Spurs to going up to Portland for a year to cover the Blazers to going back to cover the Spurs, you know, integrating some TV uh, and more video and more podcasting into it. And then obviously taking all those talents and bringing them uh, to CNBC. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports and data, disruption, media, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, we are ending, getting towards the end of April 2021. Welcome back. Thanks, Joe. It's good to see you. And I was sorry to miss you last week, but there was a good reason why you weren't able to do the show last week. So I actually want to start with that. Um, I was able to have a conversation with you privately mm -hmm. where you told me your story of what you were working on last weekend. And it's pretty mm -hmm. fascinating relates to some of the stuff we wanna talk about today with our guests this week. So why don't you tell everybody about your experience in Sin City? Well, actually it was in Atlanta. I'm sorry, not Sin City in Atlanta, but in yeah, Atlanta. I don't know why I was thinking it was Las Vegas, yeah, maybe because and, of the topic. And it was in Mercedes-Benz Stadium in front of no people, which crazy. if it was six months from now, according to the business model, it still would be in front of no people. Right. No, so, because it was a made for, pay-per-view event with Triller um, launching their fight club. And we're going to talk about kind of the evolution of media, especially in the last, you know, really in the last month or so, or eight, you know, two months with where things are going on streaming and pay-per-view. And, but uh, it was, as I've told people this week, usually I'll say that this is another chapter for the book. Last week was another whole book. And just seeing how, what you can do with, uh, a digital platform with young people engaged in a classic sport, creating a spectacle tied to music uh, with lots of on-camera drinking and smoking going on like it was 1950 <laughs> um, was, was an experience. And, and when you look at the, the results and how you measure success today, large numbers of pay-per-view involvement, um, dominated everything going on in the social platform by every measure, every way to measure, not just in the United States, but across at least 14 countries from Friday afternoon until Monday. Betting numbers, which I've been told by people in the betting business that were passed only by the Super Bowl in the past 18 months. Oh my um, God. Wow. Um, piracy, from what I've heard, Second only to the Conor McGregor fight, which is another big thing, which eventually, Tom, we should probably do a whole show on streaming and how that is going to work and stealing of streaming and data integrity, mm -hmm. uh, because that's becoming a big issue. Um, and really a lesson in engagement of how at least one influencer has reinvented himself at 25 years old and totally understands his audience, how to reach his audience, what they want when to give it to them, when not to give it to them, and when to kind of embrace the crazy. And Jake Paul embraces the crazy. There's no doubt about it. Right, so. Joe, what's interesting is that this is the intersection of so many interesting topics that we've covered, yeah. including yeah. how social media is evolving, the idea of disruptive platforms coming in, in this case, Triller, which seems to have invested quite a bit in the Triller Fight Club and this plan to get into the boxing, more deeply into the boxing business and also the disruption in the way we think of and experience pay-per-view events, yep. which always had its thing. In fact, my, my immediate uh, thought that this was in Las Vegas, which of course I, I, I just spaced out about, was only because you, you think of pay-per-view events as being major events in places like Las Vegas. And then also the way they chose to do the distribution of the event. Um, really, really fascinating. And what's your main takeaway from it? Like, do you think this is a model for the future? I think that like everything else that's evolving, there are pieces of this that you can take away. Mm -hmm. And having had conversations with people in Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NFL, um, Octagon, our buddy Dan Cohen, we talked a little bit this week. Um, there were a lot of, everybody watched it and there were a lot of people wringing hands and taking notes. One of the most interesting things is, as we can get to our guest and talk about the streaming business, is that of the buys, they think this was the largest percentage ever 
of buys that were on a digital platform, not on a linear one. Hmm. So the okay. buys went to Fight TV, went to TrillerFightClub.com, went to mobile devices versus someone sitting in their house, clicking on their television and buying it. They, yeah. they, no one has ever seen that before, right. um, including the UFC. So that's, that's another thing that if I'm sitting there and saying, maybe things have shifted. And it wasn't just people 25 and younger. There were some boxing and MMA fans who were older who said, this is the way we're going to do it. And by far the buys, even though the time of night where it was actually morning in some places that sold a lot in Asia, um, all the buys outside of the US were digital. Everything was digital. There was not a broadcast partner you know, in Asia that was showing it on live television. It was a pay-per-view digital buy. And that, that says that there's a marketplace out there that, that people have been afraid to go to, but absolutely exists. And, you know, we can talk about some of the, the things we've heard about Amazon in the last couple of weeks and really taking over things and the Yankees games now being on, you know, 12 games on Amazon. But um, it seems like we're getting to the point now where it's becoming the, the rule, not the exception. And people are getting more and more comfortable with you know, doing things on a phone, no matter what age you are, no matter what it is you're watching, including a pay-per-view buy. All right. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It relates to that point that we had just, I think, both noted in the industry from, was it Deloitte? The new survey about media behavior showing that Gen Z actually uh, identified TV watching as being fifth on their list of int activities that interest them, the way they're spending their time, video gaming being number one. Uh, really fascinating. Anyway, Joe, it's going to be interesting to see how Triller, I know you've been doing some stuff with them, how they evolve because they've obviously decided to invest a lot in this boxing business. And the, I know there's other events coming up, but they still have this bigger challenge of how they become a larger general social media platform. I mean, they're wow. growing. But it'll, yeah. be, it'll, it'll be fascinating to see how this actually contributes to the overall growth and scaling up of that business. Well, one way you do it is you go and buy companies. So they, they yeah. bought Fight, Fight TV. So oh. now they have a streaming company. Right. They bought Versus. So now they've got another music company that's got a lot of ties. Right. So, so going out and, and buying companies is a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there, there's an evolution. And I think... Um, you know, as we get to our guests to talk about evolution and all these things, Jabari Young from CNBC is about to join us. Um, you know, the one shout out that I think was really important that a friend of mine pointed out to me this morning was our friends at Overtime. And the fact that, yes, they have another round of sexy investors, but Andreessen Horowitz and Jeff Bezos said, this is a place we want to be. Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos investing in Overtime is a really big deal. And that's yes. kudos. And Jabari just wrote all about it. I think that's why we want to get four, in the last 48 hours. He wrote that story. So Joe, why don't you, <laughs> since yeah. you know Jabari better than I do, um, go for it. So Philadelphia is in the house. Welcome Jabari Young, um, who has evolved through the digital business from the traditional media business, working at The Athletic and now I guess two years being the sports business reporter at CNBC and has been on, especially it seems like in the last couple of weeks has really been on a run of not just breaking stories, but breaking down stories around kind of the disruption in media, new companies coming in, um, some classic partners re re reinventing themselves. So uh, Jabari, uh, welcome to the chaos. <laughs> Welcome back, you know, Joe. Thanks for having me again, and Tom. Uh, good to talk to you again, and I appreciate your help for, you know, the uh, NFT article. You know, Tom was really, really good uh, to talk to, kind of break it down, and um, you know, understanding the, the licensing uh, behind it. So I appreciate that, and it's good to be back on the podcast. Thank you, and Jabari, you you were pretty early on that phenomenon that has been the talk of spring 2021. So good for you. That was back in I think what early March or something. It feels like last year, man. Every it does. It really does. That's like way back in March. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, back, yeah. Back when Jabari, back when regular people could buy Top Shop moments, uh, they they've already turned it into quite the exclusive club, which I've been complaining about on Twitter. As as Joe knows, I've been using this hashtag NBA No Shot 
because these qualifications they're putting in place to actually buy new things has let us all know that unless you're a serious collector, you're not really welcome yet into the broader universe of NBA Top Shot, which is a little bit frustrating to me. Yeah, you know, I mean, on the one hand, you understand they're trying to keep up demand and, you know, um, they can keep people interested in trying to acquire one of these NFT packages, then, you know, that's the demand that they can create. And on the other hand, you know, in today's uh, microwave society where people get turned off very quickly, you got to walk that fine line because, you know, you don't want to, you know, alienate too many people because then at that point, you know, the average person who I think will be your biggest uh, you know, c- consumer and also uh, that younger consumer who you're trying to educate Bitcoin and you're trying to educate the whole cryptocurrency, a part of that system to these young, uh, you know, buyers. So you don't want to alienate them too much. So hopefully they can get that together. I know that they're on their blockchain. They're also trying to make sure that they can withstand the capacity that comes with opening up too much. Um, so I know that that's that factor as well. So, you know, you got to be very careful because if you do open it up, uh, and they've learned this with their kitty crypto game and, and you reach problems where people it's, it's becoming harder to even make a transaction about selling or something like that. And there's just too many people there. You don't have the capacity to hold that crowd. Then, you know, you, you also you know piss off a whole bunch of other people. So, um, you know, interesting thing to keep an eye on. But I, I can't front, man. I'm I'm almost exhausted by the NFT space. There's been so much <laughs> of them coming out. You know what I mean? Every time you turn around, I get a pitch about NFT, NFT. Everybody's doing something of the first of its kind, special. Yeah. So right. um, interesting stuff. Well, it just feels as though everybody, you, you can imagine, Joe and I have talked about this a little bit. You can imagine in these conference rooms or virtual conference rooms for all these rights holders and companies and brands, uh, the, the conversation about what's our NFT strategy? Because you know it's happening. And everybody has been eager to jump in, but as you well know, and you and you just mentioned a few facets that are quite challenging. It's a complicated thing. It's a complicated thing technologically, and I believe this unintended consequence of this NBA Top Shot situation has been to bring to the fore this question that is really quite interesting to consider that you just referenced, which is. Are you doing this for the 1% of your fans or are you trying to do this for your 99% or both? And clearly they made the decision, I think, and you're right about, I believe, the reasons. They're focusing on the 1% right now. I know that when I tried, when I logged in last week, I was notified on email about a drop last week. And when I logged in, I had the the message that I was, that there were 301,000 people ahead of me to get one of these packs. And they said there were 92,500 packs. So I wasn't a math major, but I knew I was in trouble after, <laughs> after I saw that message. And it, frankly, it was just really frustrating. Then they did another one this week where it was even more exclusive. Anyway, we don't need to dwell on that. But Jabari, let me just jump in with the first question. Joe referenced your background, which goes all the way back to when you were doing media in college days at Temple. You've actually lived through the evolution of media from being a little bit more simple, let's say 12, 15 years ago to being highly complex right now. So talk about your thoughts on how your job as a sports journalist has evolved. Well, man, um, you know, where do you start? You know, I think when I get asked questions like this, I always refer to, you know, you mentioned that old school media model. Well, that's true in a lot of, you know, respect. I, I don't think a lot of the journalism majors coming out now understands how critical it was to, you know, get into a, a community newspaper to write sports and how you needed that as the base foundation to, you know, move up to that next step, which is hopefully a high school writer. And then from the high school, you would take the college beat. And then college, you hopefully get to the pro. And in pro, you go to columnist. And, you know, once you're the columnist of a newspaper, it ain't no better job than that, right? I mean, you're the voice of the section. So, you know, I grew up on that time, you know, the, the Elmer Smiths of the world, Mike Gruden, you know, obviously Stephen A. When he was just coming into the Enquirer, I got a chance to see a lot of those guys. John Smallwood, God bless his life. You know, Bill Collin, you know, problems that obviously he had later on in his career. But, you know, when he was in his heyday, he was one of the more uh, sought or one of the more f- followed writers as far as, you know, the voice of baseball in, in the Philadelphia uh, region. So, um, you know, all those guys, Stan Hodgman and, and Phil Jasner, those were guys that I grew up reading, 
you know, Ted Solari on the on the high school beat. I mean, there was no better dude on the high school beat than Ted Solari, right? So, you know, so to see how that model kind of collapsed when Knight Ritter was kind of paying everybody top dollar to do this, and you know, to see how it transitioned into the digital age. I was right there when some communities or some papers were starting up their website. I was right there when it was getting built. I was uh, at the mainline times, mainline life, and we were just getting our website up. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that was like a a, a, a very interesting concept. <laughs> so to see how it's, you know, kind of transitioned from, you know, the handheld paper and actually putting together a section. I worked at the Courier Post over in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So I understood what it was like to be on that editing screen, putting together a newspaper. Like it was fascinating. Um, I forget the program we used. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was really, yes, there. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, you opened it up, man, and you get the, the renderings of the newspaper right there. And, you know, you had to squeeze some stuff in. So messing with those headlines and everything, that was fun. So um, I go back to Temple and now we had to take this program called Mural. And, you know, we had to go out to communities and kind of integrate everything we learned in journalism at that point. So all the, we were taking editing podcasting, we were taking Photoshop. Like they wanted us to make sure that we knew everything about what was to come, the new multimedia segment of news uh, and how it was going to really um, impact journalism. And, you know, I think that program really helped because when I got to uh, be able to, you know, start to put together podcasts and everything like that and editing through Audacity and Photoshop and Final Cut and putting together how to, you know, do stand-up videos and things like that, things that you were required to all of a sudden submit it wasn't just the article anymore. You had to submit a multimedia package, whether it be video, audio, something to go along with um, to kind of, you know, really uh, be along with this transition to digital. Uh, and so it was a fascinating time. But, um, you know, that helped me into this point because everything that I've learned back then, you know, really helped me in the various positions that I've taken uh, in my career from covering the Spurs to going up to Portland for a year to cover the Blazers to going back to cover the Spurs, you know, integrating some TV uh, and more video and more podcasting into it. And then obviously taking all of those talents and bringing them uh, to, to CNBC. So Jabbar, on top of all those challenges, you had this thing start developing in your early days called social media. Tell yeah. us about your, your memories of, of having to figure out Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that, because I hear you about having to learn these tech skills, but you also had to suddenly, like all reporters, all media people had to suddenly figure out how to deal with this world of these third party platforms, which frankly, you know, no one was giving us uh, classes on or lessons on. We all had to figure it out on our own. How did you deal with it? Well, like everybody, when Facebook started, I signed up as a college kid and did so, so I can try to find dates. You know, um, you know, Saturday night in Temple University, you know, Facebook was like, all right, what is this? You know, or how, how does this go? Um, and so when we finally figured Facebook out, you know, and then all your friends and things like that came on and it was like, wow, you know, this is this is a really interesting concept. And then so that went to Twitter and I wasn't really on board with Twitter first. I remember working in that same community newspaper and we had this one editor, a young guy who was really on board with Twitter. Like he was just Twitter, Twitter. And I'm like, nah, I ain't with it. I think it's going to fall. Uh, I mean, I, and I'm actually glad I had that mindset because there's a lot of people that, you know, when you go back to Twitter earlier days, there was a lot of comments that were made from celebrities and everything. And I see various times people go back and look at these comments and they bring it back up when Twitter was in this hated, like when this early days. And it's like a lot of that stuff, you you know, we, we said, you know, on the street, we said in conversations and we thought that Twitter was just rep a representation of that. And we were wrong, right? Because that stuff still haunts people nowadays. So, um, I'm glad I had that because I, I, I probably wouldn't want to get on here at that age, you know, talking all the nonsense and, you know, me have messed around and said something. So I didn't know what it was. But then as, you know, when I went to San Antonio to cover the Spurs, I understood how more, I understood the impact of it. You know, I understood that, you know, because I had a fan base that was really starting to follow me because I covered their team in San Antonio. So left and right, I'm getting follows. And I'm like, man, I just had like a hundred freaking follows the other day. Now I'm up to 2000. And then that went and went and, so you have to learn to figure it out. And I think you also have to learn to navigate what it is so that way you won't make that mistake that, you know, because now that I was going to be on there more actively. I'm like, all right, you got to tread this very carefully, you know, and at that time, you know, there wasn't no screenshots or anything like that. So you had to kind of really learn how to navigate it, look at the mistakes that people were making and understood what type of platform this was, right? Because it ain't this 
this community of platform that, you know, just amongst a group of people, this is like a national thing. And when it's so national and so public and matter of fact, global, right. You got to be very careful walking that line. So I think as a reporter, you just figure it out. You know, you try to say, okay, what do these people that are following me? They don't like Jabari Young, the person. They like the Jabari Young, the reporter. So, you know, you try to give them that and you give them what they are asking for, which is news and updates. And you try to bring a little bit of your personality out on the side. And I think that's how you kind of walk that, that balance of keeping it professional and keeping it at the same time, humanizing it, making sure, you know, I ain't on here just for business and just posting my stories. I do like to have fun and join a couple of conversations too. Uh, but again, it's just a, a you got to navigate it very, very carefully because as you know, there are a lot of people watching when you're on that platform. So Jabari, now, now you move on to, to where you are right now. And it's been how long? Two years now? Two and a half years? Two, going on two, you know, going on two years, almost at the year and a half, right? At this point, now we're going on May. So yeah, going on yep. two. So um, tell us a little bit about, and you've had, especially it seems like kind of a, a big rush in the last couple of weeks of new news, both coming to you and people that you've been cultivating for a while. Um, how does the news flow work uh, at CNBC from a sports business standpoint uh, for when you know what's an interesting story, what the audience wants, and then how you're able to engage with the right people? Uh, you know, well, I think you figure it out as time goes on. You know, um, you know, Joe, listen, I was naked in this job when I first got here. And then credit to you, you wanted the first people to reach out to me. And I'm like, well, who the hell is Joe Favorito? You know, like, who's this guy? <laughs> like, is he? What, what, I just got here, and all of a sudden, somebody's against me, getting hired. What, what was going on here? So, Jabari, so, everybody uh, in the sports business at some point in their career asks that question: Who the hell is Joe? Matter of fact, but but you know, Joe Joe has uh, really uh, he he has been my life rafter on plenty of occasions. You know, and. You know, just just his way to navigate, you know, the business and allow me to understand some of the pitfalls. Um, and you, Joe, actually helped me understand what the audience wants because no longer. I remember when I first came here, one of the first stories I was writing, I kind of like had the spurs as like the lead, and my and one of the editors was like, "Yeah, we probably gotta be a little bit more bigger because people, everybody don't know who and people on the spurs is." So you learn, you go through those type of learning process, kind of understand what the audience is. You understand what, you know, you see other people and your peers around you now in this new group and, you know, same things that they're reporting about because this is a brand new platform. So I'm trying to study to see all right, what this is, how I can build it, right, and, and build my own. Because I think when I first got here, everybody was like, oh, Darren Lavelle, Darren Lavelle. I'm like, yeah, that was a while ago. I'm here now. I ain't trying to replace Darren Lavelle. I'm trying to be Jabari Young and, you know, build it my, myself. And so, um, you know, you, you, you just kind of study it. And that, that took a long time, man. That, that was night to night, staying up to three, four in the morning, just studying old CNBC articles, studying, you know, sports business, uh, you know, sports, sports business journal, you know, studying the old articles that came out, you know, uh, going back and reading, you know, some of Joe's work. I mean, it's it just trying to understand what this new world was for me and then going to a few of those uh, conferences, which are always valuable, really helped me kind of understand what new audience I was dealing with. And you're dealing with a more business-minded audience, but but even people that are in business are human beings. So you got to kind of make sure that it, you humanize it in a way that you, if you're asking them to click on my story to read it, they're going to be informed and entertained and Listen, you make it into a drama because that's what it is. It's sports, right? How much of it is serious? <laughs> you know what I mean? This ain't no, this ain't no war. You know, this this ain't people. This is sports. You know, and this is a, it's a new element of sports business. But you know, I think people like the 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 deals, and I think people like those people who are not as close to it, um, or who weren't ever close to it. You know, I get emails all the time like, "Yo, man, I never watched NBC until you joined. I never read it until you joined." So. I'm happy to have integrated the worlds, you know, people that have followed me, people who have read my work or who are, who are just fans, period, you know, don't like to say that word because I ain't no celebrity, but just a, you know, a reader and a listener and to incorporate them in the CNBC world. And then you just trying to take what I know they like because I've been with them and they built and understand what that audience is and connect it to the CNBC audience. And, you know, I'm still navigating that, but I think I did a good job at, you know, connecting the bridge. Jabari, was that transition from 
mainstream sports journalism into sports business journalism intentional? Like, was that a conscious decision on your part as you wanted to evolve your own career? Hell no. I No, I had no, <laughs> absolutely not. No, I, no, no way. I ain't know anything about business, man. Like, you know, listen, I tell people all the time, I'm not ashamed to say this, like, I'm, I'm from, from North Philly. You know, when I, when I came up, I, I didn't, business wasn't like, we didn't understand the concepts. Nobody taught that to us. You know, we, we was maybe happy to have a savings account or my dad took me and I had a, my first bank account was like the credit union. I didn't even know what the hell that was. Like, what am I doing here? Like, so, you know, I, I have any idea what those business concepts were like. And that's why I said it took a lot of studying in my early days here just to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like I always go back to an old Kobe Bryant story, God bless his life. And, you know, Kobe was saying how when he was first in L.A., you know, everybody was saying, Kobe, you should ask for a trade. You want out because Dale Harris wasn't playing him. And, you know, Kobe has said, yo, shut the hell up. I need to figure this out. And he did, right? <laughs> Look what he turned into. So I kind of use that as motivation. Like, all right, I'm here. Let me figure this out. But credit to Stephen A, you know, on that. Um, you know, he actually motivated me to take the job because, uh, and, I, and I think I told Joe this story, like, I had no intention of coming. I was ready to say no. Like, I'm coming to Spurs, man. I'm good. Like, I, I broke one of the biggest stories and Kawhi being traded and, and also broke the fact that RC was elevated. Like, I think I finally commanded control of this beat. And, you know, I, I'm going to go nowhere. And, you know, I remember I was in Dallas visiting my aunt and, you know, Stephen A called me up one night and it was about 10 o'clock in the night. And he usually doesn't call me that late. And I'm thinking, all right, it's cool. And we started talking about it. And I, I think he said that I didn't take it seriously enough. And man, you think he's yelling or screaming on TV. He was getting on me that night. And I'm like, what the hell did I do to Stephen A? You know? And so, um, at that point, I just kind of understood the seriousness of it and just understood what it could be and how it could be a transition for me, you know, to upgrade myself as a journalist, right? Because I think any journalist loves the challenge of learning new beats, learning new things. Like, that's part of the reason we're journalists, right? Because we're so intrigued by things and we're so, you know, we, everything is like, you're curious to us. And so um, the era I grew up in, you know, people wouldn't spend 10, 15 years on a beat. I mean, some guys would, but natural cause was you go from one beat to the other to the other and then you hopefully will get to a columnist position um and so i've always thought man when when it's my time i just wanted to reach the columnist position and then as you referenced joe when the athletic i got hired at the athletic i just really understood because i was at the express news still in the newspaper industry though i was doing more digital related things i still was like man if i could be the buck harvey in san antonio you know it was one of the best columnists to me and really taught me a lot about covering the Spurs. If I could be that, I'm cool. You know, I've reached the peak. Like, I'm a columnist at a newspaper. And then things is kind of the digital side of it. You know, you really understand, yo, this is it's bigger than just being a newspaper columnist. Now. You can really go and do some other things because the digital world has opened up so many doors. So, so speaking of door openings and things learning, let's talk about um, some of the more recent stories that you're, you've you been involved with or watching and things that you're going to be watching going forward, which are, especially given your beat, are certainly kind of non-traditional from where you've been before. So we touched on NFTs, uh, took a little bit about Overtime Elite and, and their news this week, um, some of the sales of teams, uh, some of the other marketing deals that have come along. Uh, what are some of the things that from that you've been asked to look at or you've decided to look at from a CNBC standpoint that are a little bit different that you've had to evolve into and are now really kind of intrigued and on, you know, as these, these new opportunities develop? Man, uh, good question. You know, how do I answer that one? Um, Joe, it kind of had, it's two roles to that question because when I first started, it wasn't a pandemic, you know, so I, I thought I was going into one lane. And then, you know, when the pandemic hit, you see sports get, you know, somebody threw a glass, you know, a rocket at a glass and it shattered and you saw sports naked, you know, because the revenue was coming in, everything stopped. Mm-hmm. So you got a chance to kind of see how they were going to build it up again. You know, obviously, you know, the traditional way that the media side, the, the TV deals and, but they didn't have any audience, you know, so it was a good opportunity and still is to learn, right, how these teams are going about it and, and how they're getting back to the way that they're trying to run their businesses. Because 
they were stripped of a lot of things. And so, you know, I got a chance to kind of see all of the leagues, the teams, just like I was, they were naked. You know what I mean? Like they, they came there and they were like, yo, what do we do? I had to see them game plan to bubbles. I saw how those revenue streams, how they were, you know, they were different now because, you know, you didn't have people in the arenas. We got a chance to see how video conferencing gets really incorporated into it now. And then so from all of those elements, you just kind of see the different story or news angles that arrive from them. And how did you connect it to business? Like what are investors looking at now and how is sports helped them make the decision? Because part of my job is, is that I am, you know, a business audience I represent. Right. So I have to represent investors and people who may be looking to invest and that consumer who maybe doesn't know what that investment is, but guess what? I'm going to explain it to you. So if you decide to invest in the company that hires that company who does business with the NBA, now you understand that path. Um, and so you, you take all of those and, and you try to just use your news judgment. You know what I mean? You see what's hot, how you can extend on the story. You take some risks with some pitches that thrown at you and see if you can make it into a great story, humanize it, make business angles from it and, you know, go from there. And one of the stories that's still doing well for me was with Sean McCoy's story that I did last week about his opportunity zones. Right. So I had no idea that that story is basically on him as real estate. That's not a news story. Right. It's not a breaking. I don't necessarily know how many invest, but it's a story that if you see an athlete doing something, even if it's like an opportunity zone, that is part of the law. Right. You can this is something that you can get a tax incentive on. Then I think that, you know, helps translate the human side of it. So you put all those stories together and you, like I said, I'm still figuring out how to navigate it all. But I'm just kind of you just kind of use your news judgment, kind of understand, OK, this is interesting. This isn't interesting. And, you know, try to make sense of it and how it relates to what's going on now. You know, I think we talked about the NFT. I, you know, I'm kind of exhausted from it. You know, there has to be a special NFT story that's going to grab it. That's going to get my interest now because there's so many of them out there. You know what I mean? I'm getting this, the NFT, this first team, this first person, that first, this, this first, that. And it's like, all right, it's the, the NFT version of it is kind of it's slimmed down for me. You know, now I'm kind of tracing, okay, what's after this NFT thing? And to me, What's the display, right? Because you have these NFTs, nobody just wants to keep it. I think that there's a play to be made about the displays that you can maybe put in your house. So if you have these NFTs and you can access them, wouldn't it be a dope piece of art? This is the art part of it um, that's displaying in your house. I know if I had a party, it would be dope if I had a couple of Michael Jordan NFTs playing on my wall. While, you know what I mean? Everything. I think that would be a fascinating part of a party. So like, are there displays that are going to be made out of this? Um, and, you, you know, you just kind of play around with it and, and see how that is. But um, I digress. Again, it's just you, you kind of use your news judgment. And you just kind of understand what this new audience is, what your old audience is. And one of the things that's been intriguing to me is just how the digital age, uh, how sports has really had to come into the digital age. Because I think up into the point of the pandemic, they thought they were right because of Twitter and Facebook. But now, like the rest of the world, they're rushing to understand what this new landscape looks like. The, the uh through the the uh augmented reality you know the, the holograms uh all of this new technology that's been sitting there and now we get a chance to see how sports are going to use it and we know sports figures are some of the greatest innovators um you know in the world jabari when you guys publish stories and i'm i'm looking at your your recent list of stories which includes stories about the overtime investment by bezos and drake and, and stuff like that uh, the, the Nick Nurse joining, uh, joining of the data company, the Formula One expansion to the U.S. Are you or you and some people from CNBC looking at the performance of those articles to help optimize what you may focus on as time moves on? So someone looking at the, the shares, tweets, retweets, et cetera, to give you some feedback directionally about where you should be spending time? No, I, I do personally, um, you know, to, to, to CNBC and my editor's credit, they've let me kind of build this the way that I see the vision, you know, the way that I, you know, one of the things I was, you know, was wanted to make sure if I took the job was, hey, are y'all gonna let me do this thing the way I know how to do it? Cause I ain't trying to follow nobody's path. I'm not trying to, like, I need to learn this and do it the way I've done it. Like, I, at that point, this is where you have confidence in yourself and you say, all right, 
I've been in San Antonio. I know how to do that. I've been in Portland. I know how to do that. I went back to San Antonio, reinvented myself and did that pretty good. Now I'm here in New York. Like I'm putting all the cars on the table. I'm not trying to do what everybody else is doing. I got to do it the way that I do it. So if I fail, I can only say that, yo, listen, they gave, they gave me the opportunity to rock out. They gave me that opportunity. And I, one of the things that I do every day is I look at everything that I read or everything that I write and I see what's, how's it doing? What it is is part of my morning routine. And then if I see that, you know, one thing's doing well, or if I see that if I talk about one particular company or one lead, it's doing well, I'll continue to explore more stories about that. Because obviously the, the reader is showing you that they're interested in this stuff. And if I see one that isn't, doesn't, doesn't do so well or the audience just don't really care about it, I mean, I'll leave it alone, you know, because I remember I'm a journalist. I work for people. People read me because they want information. Like I am a service to these people you know they don't they don't know me the person they know me as the person who writes so you know i, I just try to maximize what i think they'd be interested in and and at the same time try to understand all right i could take this sport like formula one had a great time writing that story because i was able to sit back research it i mean i understood how big it was i saw that it was blown up on sunday when it, when it was announced i followed it i said all right i see this is you know this is kind of gaining a little bit of traction let me see if there's anything there and over the next 24 hours after that story came out i'm like all right this this kind of sounds like something that i I can take it to the next level so what could i add to it what what could i do and you sit back and you research and it took me hours and hours to research that and understood that you know and then talking to one of your professors and and chris and other people and had a chance to talk to michael andretti just understanding what they were telling me about what they see because these people have been around these sports longer than i have and just taking that and understanding how I can put a new spin on it and understand how it's relevant. And bam, you, know, you understand what it's lacking and what you could bring to it. And so but, I think that's what, how, I, how, how I view it. Right. But specifically, how are you determining that level of success or lack thereof with a specific article? So you're, is someone letting you know pages? By looking at the... I am. Yeah, I do. I watch, okay. look at the page views. I look at the social, I look at the reaction. I follow okay. it. You know, I follow it. I yeah. Follow I, I, but let me, just, let me just yet. finish the, the full, the full context mm-hmm. of the question. So, so all this is quote measurable media and digital on the third party platforms, the stuff you're doing through yeah. your CMS at CNBC. I notice on CNBC that commenting is not, there's not a commenting function on your articles. Which, which obviously varies as a policy with different uh, media businesses. So for example, if I read that F1 piece by you a couple of days ago, I, and I want to engage to use the word of the day for media and journalism, um, I would then have to say, okay, I want to respond to this. I probably, w- I can't do it on, in that specific environment of the CNBC article that I'm looking at right now on my screen. I would have to then find you, I guess, on Twitter and then weigh in on your tweet about it. You know what I mean? Like, so take, just describe how you handle that because there's different ways to judge if something's successful or not, but it does require a bunch of investigation on different platforms, including your own, to, to get really specific numbers. Yeah. Now, Tom, you're going above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You know, I, I think it's it's a matter of, you know, everything that you said, you know, listen, I can only go by what the tools that I have. Right. And so I look at things based off of metrics that I've deemed, um, you know, successful. And, you know, Lee, there are certain metrics that I this is my personal thing that I look at. I see what's doing well on our site and I see, OK, this is a hot story. I know that's a hot story. Look how many numbers that's getting. If my story is getting just as much as those, then I understand that, okay, maybe that's a successful story. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I look at it from that standpoint and, and just, I get trying to understand what the audience is. And also not to leave out the social media play of it. If I see that it's getting hits from Facebook, if I post it on my Facebook and I see that it's getting responses, if I see that people like it, then I can build on that content and then go from there because I understand I'm getting a frame. I don't need no metric to tell me that. People are actually engaging with me on it. And I ain't just Twitter. I think, you know, one of the things I think a lot of journalists mistake that we kind of get worried about is how Twitter, how stories are being retweeted. How Twitter is only a small percentage of where your news hits come from, what I've learned. 
you know, it's not as big as what people think it is. So when you see the people getting a thousand something retweets, yeah, if it gets to the maximum of 30,000 retweets, then yeah, that's a different thing. But we're talking like 300 retweets, a thousand retweets. Those retweets, I don't think that those are, those metrics are really, uh, can determine the success of a story. It is, it can determine the Twitter success of a story or how it's performing socially. But I don't think it can determine the overall success of whether that story was popular or not or whether people read it or not. I think there are a whole bunch of other metrics and a whole bunch of other websites that you got to kind of build to see that. And I think what we have, they do a great job at understanding and under letting us break that down of where this traffic is coming from. And you'll see that most of the time it's coming from us and CNBC. People are logging on to CNBC.com and they're reading this stuff. And so that lets me know that our audience is coming directly to us. And so I get a chance to just kind of study it from that foundation. But there's a whole bunch of metrics, Tom, that I think you can use. And, you know, to get caught up in the numbers also is a mistake because I think if you write something, no matter how it does from a metric standpoint, and you know that you hit it and you know that peers are telling you, I think that's a good news story. And I think you should build off of that and go from there. Some stuff is, doesn't work as well as others, but at the same time, like this is a part of you using your journalistic, you know, your, your instincts again to just be able to tell what's a good story how I can turn an okay story into a great one and make it interesting. Because again, you're asking people to click on this to make it interesting. If you just view from it that point and not sweat the metrics too much, like we are bound to do in this new data age, but you just kind of go back and use some of those old school techniques of just judging a story. I think most times, nine times out of 10, the story would be successful. So I've got a question for you and Joe with your two different perspectives, Joe being more of a professional communications business executive Know, and knowing the world of, of um, public relations and social media quite well, and Shabara, you as a professional journalist, one of the topics that is central in the evolution of media in the digital age is the importance of user-generated content, the voice of the readers and the listeners. So the equivalent, the digital equivalent of sports talk radio, like taking the opinions of the, the user-generated content from actual readers or listeners of whatever you're doing. One of the things we discuss in my class and sometimes debate in my class is whether first party sites, such as all these media sites, like could be CNBC, could be ESPN, could be Players Tribune, could be Yahoo Sports, should allow or not allow the commenting function on the actual environment of the article. So I mentioned Jabari, it appears that CNBC does not have a commenting function. ESPN does not have a commenting function. You guys probably know the New York Times does have a commenting function. Uh, Players Tribune does not have a commenting function. Bleacher Report, I think, has one. The Athletic has one in a logged in state. So what do you guys think? I, I find that to be a really interesting question because to the extent you're not letting your readers immediately respond in your own environment, you're kind of pushing them out into the wild, which may not be advantageous for the, the media ecosystem that you're trying to develop with your brand. Catch my drift, Joe? Yeah, so I, I think part of the problem is people posting for the sake of posting. And it's funny, a lot of times when even on comments on tweets, people will go in and say, oh, look at that terrible comment. And then you can click on it and say, okay, well, this person has 12 followers and is always negative. So, so that's, and, and having talked to people like Crystal Plock at ESPN about this, that's one of the, the issues is, is you're opening, you're opening it up to an open form that you don't really want to have curated. So how- well, well, Wait, but why, I'll stop you there. Why? Because you can moderate, there's language filtering well, software. And then I would argue simply that you could just basically make the decision to put some resources against it, which could be both software and human resources if you if you took it seriously but but one of the problems that people and people have gotten tried to do that and some of the responses that people have gotten from ESPN is like oh you're just putting out there only the positive things that you want how do I know what the responses are so so by not having any response directly on an article it it, it gives you the ability and, and and by the way if you write something that's controversial the social world will find it and they will yeah. hear it and yeah. kill you or, or praise you. So yeah, uh, I think that's part of part of the issue. And it just, I think it just opens you up for all kinds of spam, all kinds of other problems that you just don't need. That's just my opinion. Yeah. But even before Jabbar, yeah. before you respond, let me let me just quickly say, 
as someone who reads the New York Times seven days a week, not literally the, the whole Times, but especially the op-eds, I uh, probably at least half the time visit the comments section. And as you guys probably know, there are pretty generally pretty smart people commenting, but the opinions vary pretty wildly. And if let's say uh, an op-ed writer writing a, um, a piece that is, let's say anti one political party, everybody will jump in with their own opinions, but they do leave dissenting opinions in the commenting section. It's not like because they're quote, the liberal New York Times, they're editing out uh, Republican leaning uh, reactions. You know what I mean? So, right. but it feels to me like a really good feature as a customer of the New York Times. Like I like that. So, so right. what I'll say is, I think there's an assumption. The assumption is that they don't either care or they don't want the comments. When in reality, they are using other software to measure sentiment and share of voice across everything that they're doing. And mm -hmm. the NFL does a really good job of this uh, that I've seen where you may not be able to comment on an NFL article, but they sure as heck know what's being said on something that's being posted across multiple platforms because of the software that's tracking everything that's going on. So you, you get, you know, it may not be kind of like, I as a fan don't see everything that everybody's saying, but if I'm the publisher of that site, and I would imagine CNBC does this as well, that I know I can pretty well tell what's resonating where, and that's gonna dictate my coverage just because of the analytics that I can pull from across the internet. Okay, Jabari, what do you think? Yeah, yeah Tom, and I, Tom, I think you also said a key thing too, and uh, you, how you were kind of explaining it, and you said customer, right? You pay for the New York Times. So that's a feature that you, the comment section is a feature that you are, that's a part of the experience you pay for. Uh, CNBC is free, the athletics not, right? One offers comments, the other doesn't. ESPN's free, the athletics not. One offers comments, one doesn't, right? So I think that that's a part of it as well. When you have a media ecosystem that's understanding that, as Joe said, we don't have to moderate this because if you put a, you link to that article, right? You've been linking to it on social media anyway, they'll do that for you. The comments will come right under, under I read CNBC, uh, you know, the, the, the comments under some of our articles all the time, you know? So why, I don't have to do it on my website if I could just do it on Twitter. And that's where a lot of people are anyway, and Facebook and LinkedIn. So I think yeah. these other media companies have done it for you. You don't have to do it anymore. But, but if you're on the New York Times and you pay for this, then this is something that you is afforded to you. And they can also probably monitor that better because see where it's coming from. So paying customer is doing it. I don't think you go on and paying for the New York Times multiple well, times so you can use different email addresses so you can create a comment, right? But, but, but Jabbar, not to belabor my point, but there are plenty of examples of free sites. In fact, as we're speaking, I'm checking Bleacher Report, which does have a commenting uh, opportunity. YouTube, one of the, the most important media businesses in the world, as you guys know, allows commenting relatively uninhibited uh, but those are those but, but, are type those are different sites than major I, corporation type sites I mean I understand what do you mean major corporation Google's one of the biggest corporations in the world well, well hold on, let, let, let me finish okay. I, I, I get that that there are major as far as tech sites but I'm talking about media media sites like YouTube can do that because that's what they've been built on I don't necessarily know if, if the comment section and news articles, and there are some news articles that still do it, right? You still can comment on, I don't know if they're just, I just don't know if it's worth the hassle for news organizations to have to put up with that. Because again, they are at that point, there's a lot of hate speech that you didn't got to moderate. Now other companies do it better, but that's a resource you got to invest in. Perhaps CNBC or ABC, and I don't know this is against my pay grade, a high in my pay grade, but they may feel they don't want to do that because of all the stuff that comes with it. And we obviously know in the comment section, you can't monitor everything. You, you just can't. It's hard to do that. You know, like I, I can't do it. And, and a lot of people that get paid, I know they can do it, but I just don't know if that's a resource that a lot of media companies want to invest in. So they don't. And again, these social, these social media companies, the, the Googles of the world, the YouTubes, uh, the, the Twitter, Facebook, they'll do that stuff for you. You can put it on their platform right, and you'll but the comments the same way. I under, understood. All I'm suggesting, and this is my last word on this topic, um, it's just an interesting question to think about because we have seen the growth of these third-party platforms, what's often called big tech, beyond anybody's wildest imagination. The vast majority of the media that, that they've essentially published since their inceptions has been user-generated content. And they've become trillion-dollar companies 
while most quote traditional media companies have languished or have trouble growing certainly to that level. So you think about those two points and you say, well, gee, if we could, if we could somehow marshal the value, the resources to deal with more user-generated content, maybe we shouldn't push as much of that engagement, quote, off platform, because Jabari, the bottom line is it's an attention economy. It's a, it's a clicks and, and links and taps economy. And if you give that away, you're essentially ceding financial value to those who do receive it. So I know this is, we're getting a little wonky about digital uh, business strategy, but it's a really interesting question. And I, I, for one, whenever I visit a site that I haven't been to in a while, one of the first things I take note of is whether they allow comments or not. And if they do, I'll often just check it just to see how they're handling. Because I agree with you, Jari, it's, it's a difficult thing to do, but I would say that if you could find an, uh, an efficient way of doing it, it might actually be in the long run for building your media brand in a very competitive environment might be a wise move. And obviously some of these companies have decided to do it. Joe, I don't so know. I'm trying to understand your point though. Are you saying that, that, that they're losing monetization opportunities because they're not allowing comments? A hundred percent. How so though? Uh, you know how digital media works, at least free digital media, it's ad supported. Ads are put on pages. Pages are delivered by page views. So the more page views you get, the better. The more time spent, the better, et cetera. So if I, if I read your article about F1 and it takes me, I don't know, five minutes, and then I move off to Facebook or Twitter, or something like that, I may spend 30 minutes looking at comments and weighing in or whatever. And that's fine for you, maybe. It's probably not great for CNBC that they've essentially lost me as their unique visitor and page viewer to a third party. They're not making any money off me once I click away. That's my point. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But I, I also have to, I also think that people miss, you know, in this age of business and we talk business, I know it's a business podcast, but I also think <laughs> like, do, do people understand, like, I don't just think they understand. Like when I'm a, as a writer, when I'm a, a writer and I hit enter my article goes out in the world, my heart skips all the time because you don't know what's out there. So I've worked at sites where you have to actually, you know, when I read a story, my story, and then, you know, it's a natural human, you know, trait to scroll down and see what people say, the comments that people say. People say some really heartless things, man. You know, and, and I, I don't, I think that affects people. And maybe perhaps, I don't know this, but if this is a part true, kudos to these people, but perhaps the media companies understood this is just not worth the monetization. To see what we have to moderate, to see what we have to subject our writers to, Maybe it's just not worth making money off of that particular customer. Maybe it's just not worth it because if that customer is going to leave a comment and that's going to draw another comment, which can turn around and be a hateful comment, then it's like, I got to see all of this because I, I'm going to look. So honestly, the fact that CNBC doesn't do it, I love that. I don't care about no monetization. I don't care if they're not making money because guess what? As a writer now, I don't got to look at that. And I think that people don't forget about that part of it, just not the monetization part. Well, and the, the other side of it is if, if you went by that theory, and I, I agree with Jabari, let's just do lists about everything. We'll put, so Jabari, every time you post this story, take 10 pictures and create a list so that everybody can keep clicking on the pages for all the beautiful pictures. Right. The gallery, they're called, <laughs> like, the, gal, the galleries, Joe. Yeah, that's an old trick that we used I to I actually, use. you see, I like the galleries. I don't know if you guys you remember got, something. The Boston Globe did something called like, it, it was this, big giant gallery and it was like all of these huge pictures and they would take it and put it all around and just capture different type of news cycles that was going on around the world and it was fascinating and I would click through all of those pictures because those were some great images that I think it, and I spent maybe an hour on that page so there's other ways that you can keep people on there just not through, through the comments right but that's like kind of my journalism, point and, like and, and Jabari that was not necessarily the idea in, 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 in all likelihood necessarily the idea of an editor it was probably the idea of the ad sales department because what you just yeah. said is the bingo on this conversation you spent an hour on it you visited 10 pages instead of one guess what that was worth a lot more money than doing a normal article so i'm not i'm not questioning the value of any of these articles i'm just talking about what i would describe as the media experience that we all have with different brands and i find it fascinating that everybody's handling this differently, but I'm not surprised that Amazon's a close to $2 trillion company and Facebook's close to a trillion 
and Google's over a trillion. Um, they've been masterful in the way they've used media companies to help them build wealth. So they have done that, haven't they? Yeah, uh, well, they have yeah, done that. Yeah. <laughs> Jabari, before they we have done. let's get back to um, one more thing that's on your pay grade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, stories that you're looking at, or at least topics that you're looking at, that we should have on our radar going forward. You know, we've mentioned obviously the overtime uh, investment this week, Formula One. What else is, especially now as we kind of transition into that NFL draft? NBA draft, NBA playoffs, MLB playoffs, MLB All-Star game, MLS season, you know, Super League craziness. Obviously, we didn't even touch on that. Uh, what are some of the things that you have on your radar uh, that you're really intrigued by in the next couple months? Man, I can't give you my whole story list, man. You're going to have somebody steal my ideas, man. Yeah, just make it. Just make um, it hey, Jabari, don't forget, yeah, no, Joe does you, his own blog. He's looking for some ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Columbia you know, football. Um, Joe, there you go. Uh, I, I think some, some of the things that I think is, is going to be interesting, that some of the things are not even just story ideas, but just events that I'm you know paying attention to is how sports gets set to their new normalcy or this new different as – you know, another Columbia guy, Andy Dolis, like to say, right? This new different. I promise Andy, I would say all the time, give him credit because he, he did come up with that. Um, but, you know, he always says that the new different. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of following each week, each team, each, you know, player, each staff member, executive, just to kind of see how they all come to, you know, what this new different is going to be for sports leagues. And I think when you look at, when I'm looking at that concept, there's always little small stories that you pick up along the way that helps contribute to understanding what that's going to be, um, you know, how these are going to, you know, get used to the way that the world is looking, right? A multicultural world uh, where, you know, you have to take it in account and you have to really start to make sure that you account for the, um, the, 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 the fans that you traditionally may have targeted, you know, black fans, Hispanic fans, Asian fans, like, you know, how are these new leagues going to do that? You know, and how do you also keep your fan base, the ones that you have, um, keep them happy for what this new difference is going to be. So um, that's the one thing that I've been focused on, you know, uh, and also just kind of understanding how the world, one of the things I know I always have to do is that I just can't pay attention to sports business, Joe. I got to pay attention. I got to look around the world to see what's happening, what's going on in Africa, what's going on in China, because a lot of that stuff influences what's, you know, what, what's going to happen in the U.S. or what ideas, you know, the NBA is one of the biggest people who pay attention to European soccer, they take a lot of their ideas and try to, you know, formulate their own in that. So knowing that I try to pay attention to what's going on in European soccer as well, you know, just to see if there's anything that, you know, could help um, or if there's anything the NBA could be looking at that I can go to them and say, Hey, this looks interesting. Are you guys looking at that? Bam. It turns into a story because again, it's understanding what this new difference is going to be. And I think, of you know, people, sometimes they are so close minded to thinking that it's just in the U S that things happen. It's like, nah, a lot of innovation going on in a lot of places and you know i think great business people are great to find those innovations and see how they can turn into business models and make money off of it and you know again that's why you got to look around the world david stern was one of the guys who did that and you know during his last days kind of let me understand how critical that was to at least the league that he's run to making sure that you look at things through a global perspective so um paying attention to how the new difference is going to look uh paying attention to what new owners are coming in, what new ideas that they might bring to these leagues, uh, paying attention to this new digital age and the way that people are trying to rebuild the internet. You know, I think Ted Leonsis has kind of said that, you know, like this, this is like a new NFTs. We talk about NFTs and things of that nature and blockchain and cryptocurrency. Like this is like a wave of new internet coming out. And I'm fascinated like everybody else to see how, how that is. And it's fascinating to see how the leagues adapt to it and uh, want to take everybody else that maybe can't, you know, pay attention to it like I can, take them on for the ride. And again, it gives back to me that that's, I feel that's my job as a journalist is to take people along for the ride that can't pay attention to it because they live in their own lives. Cool. Tom, any uh, parting thoughts? No, it's, 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 it's really fascinating to, to think about the different opportunities and challenges that the different parts of the media ecosystem have right now. To your point, there's so much stuff coming down the pike. I mean, the, the disruption that we often talk about on this podcast, Jabari, that we're all witnessing right now seems to be accelerating. That's just basically been the general feeling throughout the business, this new different idea I agree with. And 
regarding the uh, the birth of the new internet. That was the, I think the specific phrase Ted used a few weeks ago in a conference. Um, I agree. And I think the opportunities that's gonna bring to the industry, those are gonna bring to the, well, this whole change is gonna bring to the industry is really significant. And I think it's gonna require some really creative and progressive thinking by all parts of the sports ecosystem, not the least of which is this topic today of how best to, as Joe likes to say, do your storytelling, engage fans, and then connect that to inevitably, this, and this is key, what is the business model against that plan and how are you monetizing? Because while you know, various journals might not necessarily have to think about it throughout the day, this is on the minds of everybody in management in me the media business right now because it's very challenging. Anyway. It is. Yeah, it's not, yeah and I think you're right, Tom, and just to piggyback right on that. See, but see, that's why I think this, this is where the athletics has really capitalized and really allowed themselves to make a, you know, put their stamp on this new media model because what they've proven is that people will pay for good storytelling. They will pay for that insight, that information. And it goes back to almost like a phrase in this book that I read a while ago called Contagious by Jonah Berger. Like there is that element of when you're a New York Times client or Wall Street Journal or Financial Times, like you have an element of information that may not be available to others. <laughs> you know, right. and I think that the great media models have done, the media businesses have done a great job at making sure that they capture that storytelling because again, people are interested in it. They do want to know what goes on behind the scenes because we're in this crazy society where everything is going on at once, right? All music is happening. All these new, new I can't keep up with the shows because they got a new one dropping almost every day on, on another streaming platform. So when you get that, you know, storytelling element, when you get that, I think people are going to pay for it. They're going to uh, continue to support it. And I think that's where the new model is also heading. And also, you know, one other thing that you, you kind of touched on with the way that the new business is, you know, listen, <laughs> People can't also forget about the traditional way, the traditional model, which in especially these leagues, which is making sure that they uh, appreciate the fan because they understand how important that fan is in those buildings. We look for other ways to monetize. We got the TV rights money. We got the, the sponsorship and the corporate sponsorship. Don't forget about the fans. Don't forget about the people who fill that arena. And even the TV networks know this, you know, because they understand like what a game looks like with nobody there. And it's not good, Joe. I'm thinking you probably agree with me. Like we we had fun with the monitors and everything, but I think people miss those fans. And so when they get back into the arena at full capacity, I hope the teams, I hope the leagues, uh, as journalists as well, I know we will, um, really kind of pay attention to that because that's going to be a fascinating experience when sports, you know, is back to that particular normal. Cool. And Joe, the power of the fan was never better illustrated than what just happened with the Super League debacle. Your fans yeah. spoke. And business, a business course of business history change. Yeah. Yeah. I just like the Mets to stop being boring. That's all I want. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, hey, before we let you go, Jabari, um, where just remind everybody where they can find you. At my house. No, I mean I know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Joe, that's the best answer we've ever gotten. <laughs> the um, New is spoken. So anyway, yeah, um, no, nah, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter, man, Jabari J. Young, you know, um, and, and obviously CNBC.com and you can catch him and read me there. But, you know, Joe, you, you can catch me in the mornings when I'm texting you over, you know, drinking coffee, trying to get Joe to understand. Joe's, no, I get a text from him almost every week, every other week. Hey, Joe, what does this mean? What does that mean? Can you introduce me to that person? So, you know. Yeah, cool. Cool. Well, once again, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it really was. Jabari, thanks. thanks for I'm glad we got to no, mix it up a little me. bit on this question of, of how these sites are handling uh, the content piece. I, I just no, I appreciate it, man. It was a good, yeah. good, uh, a good information for me because again, I didn't know, I didn't still understand how important comments were, but I, I think there is a monetization play there, um, as you hey. kind of said. So it was good information. Yeah. And we had lots of comments about it. So that worked out real well. <laughs> and by the way, I don't, I don't, as I often say to Joe, like, I don't envy the people in these management positions having to make these calls. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, they're fun to analyze academically in a way. They're fun to, to, to talk about as, you know, as business people, but it really is a challenging time. So uh, kudos to you for fighting the good fight and keep up the good work. It's, it's a pleasure to read you every day. 
Well, listen, guys, I can only be here because uh, of your help. So thank you, Tom. Special thank you to Joe. And, and uh, you know, look forward to coming back on the podcast. Tom, you want to wrap us up? Yeah. Well, thanks again. We've been talking to Jabari Young from CNBC, where he's the sports business reporter, um, a wonderful guy, and I encourage everybody listening to check him out on Twitter. He's got a good Twitter game, as he mentioned uh, modestly before, but uh, he's, he's pretty, pretty important in my feed every day. And you can also find him on the CNBC website, of course, but probably easiest just to, uh, to Google his name. Uh, once again, Jabari, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate everybody listening. By the way, if anybody has any suggestions on topics or guests, we say it. We're not exactly overwhelmed with user-generated contents, Joe. Comments, Joe. So, bring them on, <laughs> well, but but we can keep inviting everybody. Uh, but anyway, we're we're easily accessible. Please hit us up if you have any thoughts. Thanks to Ben Walsh behind the scenes for producing. Thanks to Columbia Sports Management Program for supporting us. We'll see everybody next time.